Welcome to the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Here are your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stahl. All right, welcome to our podcast where we cover business in the news and add our legal twist. My name's Nasser Pasha. And I'm Matt Staub. Matthew Staub. And today we are covering non-competes again for the second time <laughs> this week. Kind of, well, the first time wasn't really non-compete related, but it was tangentially related. Yeah, it was more the Monday's episode, it, I, I guess it fell under the non-compete umbrella, but we have a, a guest today first time having a guest in a while, Lisa Dolge. She is a litigation attorney out of Dallas, specializing in a few areas here, one of which being unfair competition, trade secrets, and non-competes. So the reason we're having her on today is she specializes in this area, and we're, we're talking about a, a non-compete agreement that was actually held to be enforceable here in Texas, and I think it's going to be a real help to have her on the episode today and, and discuss. It's one thing that for us to talk about transactional work of actually drafting these uh, non-competes, but litigating is a whole different issue. So she's actually an employment litigation attorney. Lisa, uh, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, guys. Thank you for inviting me. I know this is a, this is a hard question to start out with, and we're going to get to our topic uh, specifically, what's going on. But you're in Texas. We're, you know, our firm's based out of California. Non-competes in California are just, you, you, don't, you just don't see them. And when you do see them, you know there's going to be a problem because the court's not going to enforce it. What is going on in Texas? Why do they tolerate these non-competes? Well, you know, uh, we say it's not that they tolerate. They actually promote non-competes. We have a non-compete statute that says that non-compete agreements are allowed as long as they're reasonable and there are a few other requirements that you have to meet. And until fairly recently, the way the courts interpreted the statute is um, they made it very hard for employers to enforce the agreement. Well, that changed about five years ago. The courts came out with a new interpretation, and it's slowly catching on. The employers are now realizing that they can actually use the agreement to tie up their former employees. A lot of employees are still under impression that disagreements are not enforceable, so they sign them, you know, without giving it a second thought. And of course, when they part ways, it becomes a big issue. So I'm seeing disagreements constantly. I'm seeing them across all industries, and I'm seeing all kinds of language, ranging from something very ridiculous, you know, five years, can't work anywhere in the country, to very specific limitations and everything in between. So Texas is, uh, I mean, they have a very good, or we have a very good law, uh, body of law on this on this issue. Yeah, I mean, uh, but you're right about those those year terms. I mean, you get a wide range of what people do, and and we'll talk about a second what we find reasonable and how to actually determine that, which I have a feeling we're not going to get a straight answer from you on that. But uh, let's talk about this, what's going on. Actually, it's a Houston case, right? Let's What's what's going on with this, what is it, Globo Gym? Right. Well, it's actually, it involves lifetime fitness. Are you guys aware of that chain? No, I, I was trying to think. I, I just joined Equinox, but <laughs> we talked about that on another episode. I've never heard of that. It's a higher-end type of gym that also has spa built in. And in, in this case, it's in Houston. A vice president and his wife were both working for a lifetime fitness location that was very profitable. And the VP was interested in opening his own competing med spa. 
And so, which is, you know, is okay, is allowed. He can do that as long as he doesn't violate his non-compete. But the problem in this case was that while he was still working for a lifetime, he was using all of the confidential information that Lifetime had about its customers, profits, pricing, you know, all of this information that, that is highly confidential to their business model. He was using his position as the vice president to gain access to that information and use it to plan his competing business. And that's a big no-no. That's usually how most of the employees in Texas get in trouble, regardless of whether they have a non-compete or not is if they're trying, if they're taking confidential information that belongs to their employer. You know, I was reading through kind of what happened here, and he entered into this non-compete agreement, which on the face of things looked looked fine. I, I believe it was three years after employment, couldn't solicit clients, some other protections in there as well. But I think it's how he went about it, like you were, Lisa, like you were just saying. He was not only doing things while he was working for Lifetime Fitness still, but he was doing things using the resources of Lifetime Fitness while on the on the clock. So using their computers, I believe there's some, you know, they, they were able to trace email. He was using, I think, some of his assistant while he was at Lifetime in order to kind of build this competing practice or competing gym, you know, leaves the company. I, I think he might have gotten terminate, I can't recall, but puts this new gym in place, you know, a few miles from from where he works. So I think it was the, the non-compete itself on its face was fine from what I can understand, but it's it's really how he went about the whole process. Right. No, I, I agree with you. Absolutely. And, and I mean, he was saving a lot of the documents that he was creating for his new business. He was saving it on Lifetime Fitness computer system, which not only he's competing at this point with Lifetime, but it's also creates evidence that he he can't control anymore. So Lifetime terminates him, and now they can go into his work email and yeah. pull all that information and find all that evidence and build a very solid case against him. And I'm sure, I think all three of us have, have experienced this with our clients before. It's not uncommon for employees with bad actors that they start planning this way before they are let go. They start using company resources and trade secrets. And I think that's what's unique about this case because in California, exact same facts, maybe the non-compete wouldn't you know hold water, but the trade secrets aspect, that's something that California does care about. And you know they, they would actually enforce with that so that they're able to show that they breach confidentiality and use these trade secrets to basically start a competing business, especially during the employment, let alone after the employment, then that's definitely that's definitely going to be an issue. Right. And I don't know if you guys saw that or not, but the, the damages that they want him to pay is they want him to give back all the profits that his new location made. Oh, yeah. <laughs> not only were they able to shut it down with an injunction, but he's now going to have to give up whatever his new business earned. <laughs> Interesting. In Texas, we can be pretty aggressive here. Again, in California, when it comes to injunctions against former employees, even with trade secret stuff, man, it's tough. But anyway, enough of the comparisons. Let, let's talk about non-competes in, in Texas for a little bit here for a second, really boil it down. So they have to be reasonable, right? You said, but... How the heck does an employer determine what's reasonable? Well, I mean, speaking like term-wise, usually anything under two years is gonna is gonna be looked at favorably by the court. 
is going to be acceptable. Anything over two years is going to kind of raise an eyebrow. So the employer would have to have a really good reason for why it's more than two years. Okay. Well, what if it's two years and a non-compete for the entire state of Texas? So the geographic area has to be tied to the area where the person is working. So, for example, if it's a sales, you know, sales, very common for salespeople to have non-compete agreements, it can only cover the area that, that's assigned to them in which they actually work. So if they're assigned the whole state of Texas and they travel in Texas and they have clients all over the state, then the geographic area would probably be reasonable. As an alternative, a lot of companies, instead of doing a geographic area, because that's such a, you know, it's, it, what is reasonable, it depends on how you look at it. They'll do a non-solicitation clause. So they'll say, you know, you can't solicit certain clients and not mention geographic area at all. And I'll mention to our California clients and listeners that a non-solicitation clause is basically the same thing when, it, as far as California is concerned, that it's still a restricted clause that is prohibited, basically. We're basically trying to convince all the California employers to move to Texas. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we've had an influx of a lot of businesses that are moving here from California. I think Toyota just made a big move. I think there are a few other companies that are moving here. And it's a huge, you know, it's a huge change for the employees that are coming from the state where non-competes are not enforceable and they move to Texas and all of a sudden they're being asked to sign a non-compete. <laughs> so Lisa, let me ask you this question and I feel bad for putting you on the spot, but just kind of your take on, so let's say this same example leaves the company, starts his competing gym, the same couple miles away or however it was, but he wouldn't have used the company resources while he was working, you know, the hours he was working at Lifetime Fitness. He, let's say he still kind of uses his his know-how of the business, maybe even stuff that could be considered trade secrets, but he didn't do it all on company time using company resources. Do you think they still would have been able to get that injunction at that point then? They would have a much harder case. To, I mean, it, it would be a lot harder for them to to get the injunction against them. Because at that point, you end up arguing in court over what, you know, general knowledge of the industry, general knowledge of the business versus a trade secret. They would have to establish that somehow he had access to trade secrets, that somehow he's using it at his new business. I mean, all the things that here were basically handed on the plate to them. They just went into his email account and saw that he emailed himself, you know, financial performa document. Oh. All you have to attach to the exhibit. That's a smoking gun, so to speak. <laughs> right, right. I mean, he, he really left them a lot of, uh, if you, I, I don't know if you looked at the complaint or not. I mean, it, it's pretty detailed and he gave them a lot of evidence. You know, even one or two pieces of, of that information would have been enough to get an injunction against them. Yeah. I mean, the clients in we have in Texas who get into, you know, that end up going after employees. Rarely do we have these set of facts. I mean, th this is pretty, I mean, this is pretty good, right? Usually maybe we have a text message or that, or an email, or we find out they're working somewhere else that's within a certain uh, radius. But to, to that same question, I mean, okay, so you're, you're in litigation, you're on the enforcement side of things. So what do you say to an employer that is like, well, we have a non-compete, but it's really just to kind of scare them. We don't really do much about it. Well, 
in in cases, in, I mean, I've actually dealt with situations like this. If you have a non-compete and you don't enforce it when you know that somebody is violating it, you're going to waive your right to enforce it with the future employee. Wow. So if your CFO leaves and you decide, well, I'm going to waive his non-compete, then your CEO leaves and now you want to enforce the same non-compete, you're going to have a very hard time defending that position. Wow, that's I made an email you later for some case law on that. That's interesting. <laughs> My approach has been a little bit different uh, from a non-legal perspective, but in the sense that and something I mean something very similar. I mean, if if you have a non-compete and you don't enforce it, that gets around, you know, and so no one's going to take it seriously and people are going to leave and then compete with you without without care. And if you're kind of selective here and there, then forget about the legal issues of waiving, you know, people aren't going to take it seriously and it, and it loses its force anyway. So, but that, I mean, but you bring up a great point that if you're actually legally waiving it, that's troublesome. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, when I interview clients and, you know, I represent both employers and employees on both sides of this type of dispute. Sure. I always ask, what's the litigation history of the company that is threatening with the enforcement of the non-compete? And if they tell me, well, you know, two other people in the same position that I have in that company left, you know, a year ago and nobody enforced their non-compete. Well, to me, that makes the case much easier. I wonder if there's a discrimin like if that person is of a certain protected class that there might be some discrimination arguments as well. Let's say, okay, why are you treating me differently than these other two you haven't? Right. That too. Well, so I think we'll end with this. I, I was interested because, you know, in, in Texas, healthcare is pretty big, but physicians are, are, are treated a little bit differently with non-competes. And I thought that would be interesting to kind of just talk about for a second. Right. It's an exception that's actually part of the statute and it's the only exception that exists in the state that only applies to physicians. No other profession gets the special treatment. So the doctors actually get an opportunity or the right to be able to buy out their restrictive covenant. So in other words, if they enter in the covenant not to compete with the, with the practice and they decide they want to leave and they decide they don't want to abide or follow the restrictions, they can pay a certain amount of money to the practice to get out of those restrictions. And any, any non-compete agreement uh, with physicians that doesn't have this buyout provision is automatically unenforceable. And I haven't come across the agreements that didn't have the clause, but I've, I've, I've seen cases involving such agreements and the courts immediately just you know, find the agreement unenforceable. And that still requires uh, the reasonableness for the actual non-compete itself, correct? Well, yes, yes, it does. And it also requires that the buyout amount has to be reasonable. The practice only earns $100,000 a year, and the buyout clause says that the physician can buy himself out for half a million. That's not going to make the non-compete enforceable. So that amount has to be reasonable. So Matt's in California. I'm in Texas. Have I, Matt, have I convinced you to move to Texas yet just for the non-compete issue? <laughs> Solely based on the non-compete. No, it's, uh, well, I guess you, you have pretty nice weather where you're at too. I was going to say today was 80 degrees. It's actually a little bit warm for here in San Diego, but it's pretty, pretty ideal. I think the weather is what keeps, keeps me here, but I, I'd be happy to pay the non-compete prohibition tax to live in Southern California. So, <laughs> oh, I, oh, I don't blame you guys. I think it's 35 degrees here right now. Did you say 35? Oh. I think 35, maybe 40. Oh, 
Okay. Wow. Tonight we're close to 80. Well, um, I know that sad note, I think, of the of bad weather in Dallas, Texas. But uh, but no, thanks for thanks for joining us. I think that was a, a nice angle to get kind of the litigation side of things because to make fun of ourselves a little bit, we a lot of the things we work with are very theoretical <laughs> as far as what we're what we're drafting and hope that what we're writing is never never appear in a courtroom at all. Yeah, <laughs> that's the idea. The agreements that I end up dealing with usually have problems. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Lisa, thank you for your time. We'll go ahead and link your, we'll put your name in the show notes, link your, your firm and have a way for people to contact you as well. So again, thank you for your time. Right, thank you for inviting me. Keep it sound, keep it smart. This has been the Legally Sound Smart Business Show with your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stop. The Legally Sound Smart Business Show is your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Legally Sound Smart Business is a podcast that is intended but not promised or guaranteed to be current, complete, or up-to-date, and should in no way be taken as an indication of future results. No attorney-client relationship is created by listening or submitting questions to the podcast. The podcast does not constitute legal advice, but rather is offered only for general informational and educational purposes. You should not act or rely on any information in the podcast without first seeking the advice of an attorney. The opinions expressed in the podcast reflect the views of those individuals and do not necessarily represent the views of any other individual or business. For more information about the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, visit LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com.